Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business, along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands. People that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-Game. podcast is Robert Leonard. He is a stud. He's a young guy. He left his job making six figures at the age of 26 and never looked back. He's a former motocross athlete who has gone back to doing motocross now. He's a young dad, entrepreneurial spirit. He's got a book coming out about house hacking that we're going to talk about. He specializes in all sorts of different asset classes, including obviously house hacking, investing in RVs in a different way than I had really considered, which he's got my my Interest is peak. You're going to start to see when he talks about some of the ways you can get funding on that and some of the numbers you can get on that. I think is super interesting. Coming from an athletic background, we talk about being an entrepreneur, having discipline, what to focus on, how to remotely invest, how to pick the markets, some of the misconceptions about remote real estate investing, some of the things you need to make sure you're doing to hold yourself accountable and have discipline, how to fight that urge to watch Netflix and how there is a time and a place for all those things as well. He talks about his podcast and some of the most amazing successful people he's had on there from Jay Papasan to Brandon Turner to Neil Bawa to Jesse Itzler to some of just the biggest names in business, some of the biggest names on TV, some of the biggest names in real estate and entrepreneurship. Super impressive with the network he's put together. The guy's just taking chances, building things up, not taking no for an answer. And he definitely is successful for a reason. And as you start to listen to it, you're going to see why. And he's only going to get bigger, stronger, better, and faster. And this guy's going to become a household name in no time. If you have not heard of him already, definitely start to follow him. Check the show notes for his podcast, for his podcast network, and ways to connect with him on the real estate side. And for sure, do not forget, on our side of it, this episode is brought to you in part by Nationwide Business Capital Group. So if you're looking for funding for your real estate deals, whether you're new, experienced, you're looking for brand new money, or you're looking for more money and cheaper money to get better rates and terms on the money you already have from other lenders, reach out. Go to nicknicknick.com slash links. And under affiliates, you will see the link to contact Marianne directly and tell her the A-Game podcast sent me, I want some money. And if you already have somebody, tell her I want more money and I want cheaper money. And she will help you get set up with whatever the best fit is for you for the most competitive rates and terms for your real estate deals, regardless of your strategy. While you're there, you can check out Zach Bakery's podcast course. You can check out uh, Reva Global if you need some virtual assistance. And of course, put in promo code AGAME if you want some of the best CBD on the market from Naked World Recovery CBD. Navy SEAL owned William Brandon, amazing guy. Support the cause, support the network, support your body with some CBD. And once you get that funding, reach out to me. So the whole goal here is I want to do some real estate with you. So whether you're a new beginner or advanced, you're looking for rentals, multifamily, whatever it may be, if you want to buy some properties from me, reach out. If you'd like to sell some properties to me, reach out. If you have no idea what to do, you just want to have a conversation on how we can work together, maybe partner together on some level, reach out. The best way to get me directly is 516-540-5733. Shoot me a text message only at that number and we can open up the conversation and again, on nicknicknick.com slash links, it is all the ways to connect with this podcast and all the ways to follow me on social media, including our Facebook group. Please follow, please subscribe, please engage on our social media posts, share them, comment on them, like them. It really goes a big way, whether it's Instagram or YouTube or wherever you enjoy this podcast is available everywhere. And I really would appreciate it. It goes a long way for us, for our viewers, for algorithm, for all that fun stuff. 
Again, if you want a free checklist on how to bring more buyers value, whether you're a real estate wholesaler, real estate broker, real estate agent, go to nicknicknick.com slash bigger pockets for your free checklist on how to bring more value to your buyers. Again, I had a great time talking to Robert today. I think you guys enjoyed as well. Please reach out if you have any questions, if there's any guests you would like me to have on, join our Facebook group, ask questions on there because I will be able to give you answers on there. And if it's something that I can't answer, I'll get a guest on an answer. And that's a place that we can start to interact. So I appreciate everybody listening. I appreciate Robert coming on, follow his podcast, give him a like, give him a follow. Have a great day, everybody. Hey, podcast. All right, my guest today on the A-Game podcast is a former and once again, motocross athlete and entrepreneur who left his six-figure job at the age of 26 years old to follow his passion in investing in stocks and long-distance real estate. He specializes in RV investing, house hacking, many other strategies we're going to talk about, and he is now showing others how to get started in their investing careers. He is a finance and personal development specialist fighting out of the Boston area. He hosts a highly successful podcast called the Real Estate One-on-One Podcast, as well as the Millennial Investing Podcast, which are featured on the huge network, the Investors Podcast Network, or TIP, as you might know, which has over 250,000 downloads a month and has some of the absolute coolest drawings for some of the guests on there, man. I was looking through those sort of things. They are awesome. You got Brandon Turner, Mark Henneman, Neil Bawa, Tim Bratz, and a whole bunch of other really big, high-level guys that I thought were uh, huge gets for your show and brought great value to it. Also, as a book coming out, he is the author of The Everything Guide to House Hacking, which we'll definitely talk about. The founding member of Piranha Capital, father, son, inspiration all around. Welcome to the A-Game Podcast, and thank you for being here, Robert Leonard. Nick, thanks so much for having me. Dude, I'm really excited to have you here. I know you have a, a very, very wide array of topics we can talk about on this episode, so I'm excited to touch on a whole bunch of them, and obviously it'll be a very easy layup because people who are interested in each and any parts of those, you have so many other podcasts that you do that people can tune into you. But for a quick 30,000 foot view, a little bit of who you are and where you came from, for people who are not familiar, can you give a quick background? Yeah, you mentioned I was a motocross racer. So growing up, that was pretty much all I did. I raced motocross. I started when I was four, basically raced for about a decade till I was 14. Long story short was I was basically in the minor leagues. If you want to relate it to professional sports, I was basically in the minor leagues I was kind of the top prospect in my age group to become the next kind of professional in the, in the sport. And unfortunately, my dad ended up stopping me from racing when I was 14. And so I was just about a year and a half out from going pro and I was forced to stop racing. And given that I was like, quote unquote, one of the top prospects, I didn't really have any other plans to do anything else. That was pretty much all I've ever done, all I ever planned on doing. Nobody in my family ever went to college, nothing like that. So I didn't have any plans to do anything really along those lines but when racing was done I had to figure something out so I decided to I did a little bit of self-reflection I guess as much as you can do at 14 15 years old as a freshman in high school and <laughs> okay I'm pretty good at math and I really like money so why don't I study something like finance or accounting ended up getting really interested in investing ended up studying Warren Buffett for about eight to ten years or so and then ended up kind of stumbling into the world of real estate. And that's led me to everything that I'm working on today. That's awesome, man. You know, one of the things I tell people a lot of the time is when they're coming up to me and they're asking about getting involved in real estate, I ask a little bit about what they do. And I find that for probably no accident, but the reasons that I see more people are successful, that tend to have a background like engineers, law enforcement, military, and athletics 
former athletes, they just seem to do really well when they switch over to entrepreneurship. And I'm always curious about what's your opinion on some of the things that you might have taken from that background that might have helped you as an entrepreneur or business owner? I, I, I agree. I think athletes, anybody that's a lot of people ask me, like, where, where can I find a partner or, or for business or real estate? And I always say, go to the gym. I think some of the hardest working people are at the gym or playing sports or things like that. It's just to be good at anything like that, you have to have hard work. And so I think those are some of the best partners that you can find. And so for me, what I've taken from that part of my life was one, the hard work. I mean, from four years old to 14, it was always ingrained in me. It's just inherent to be hardworking. So that was a piece of it. The second thing was my dad and I were really, really close. He and I were like our team. So he was kind of like an early on partner for me, but also mentor in a sense. And then the third thing is that when you're racing motocross, it's super dangerous. So when you're out there essentially risking your life every time, when you're making these small risks in business or investing, it seems so like a lot of people think it's a huge deal and they're really worried about the risk. But for me, it seems super kind of minuscule in a sense. Like it's not really that big of a deal to me, just given how much I've, I've gone through in the past. So those are probably the three biggest ways. I think that's awesome. And you nailed that, man. Every time I go and I look for people that are reliable, it always comes back to my circles in jujitsu and MMA. And those guys are just always the reliable guys. I don't know if it's just the, um, you know, the thing about just the discipline of showing up every day, no matter when you feel like going or not, and knowing that whatever you put into it is what you get out of it. But it definitely is a great background for that. So I love that you said that going to the gym. I think that's such a, a great piece right there. And as far as like the motocross stuff, I guess the risk tolerance on that, your dad, I know, supported you at as, as an early age there. Was he as supportive knowing the risk that could go on financially in real estate when you first made that leap? When I got into real estate, I had made, well, so when I first got into real estate, I bought my house almost in spite of my dad. So, <laughs> me, so, so yes and no, he basically, he wasn't against it, but he didn't really believe that I could do it. I was a freshman in college. My dad said that as soon as I graduated, I had to start paying him rent. As soon as I graduated college, I was still at home, I had to pay him rent. And I didn't want to do that. So I said, all right, I'm a freshman. I have four years to save up as much money as I can. And I told all my friends and family and my dad that I was going to buy a house as soon as I graduate college. So I didn't have to pay him rent. And I was not trying to be a real estate investor. I was not trying to do anything like that at the time. I was just trying to avoid paying him rent. And turns out I bought my first house as a senior in college and ended up stumbling into house hacking. I ended up renting out one of the bedrooms and it turned into a house hack deal. And that's kind of what opened my eyes to real estate investing. And so at that point, he wasn't really against it or anything. It wasn't really even investing. It was just kind of to get out of paying rent. And then fast forward a little bit after I had done three or four deals myself, I had decided to go into long distance investing. And that was something that he, it's not that he didn't really support me, but he didn't really understand it. He's like, how are you buying these long distance rental properties in the state? or a city you've never been to, houses you've never seen, like this makes no sense to me. And that was kind of how my family all felt. But at the same time, they knew that I had probably done my due diligence and that I had probably, like I've made a lot of really good decisions in my life up to that point. So they kind of just had faith in me, even though they didn't really believe in what I was doing per se. That's really interesting because if I look back at the way I started, with the way you and I started, we're very similar but I had a very long history of bad decisions that I made. So it was like no faith in what it was, but it's, it's really interesting that you had such a smooth transition into remote investing. Cause you know, obviously I think a lot of people have transferred over that way since the pandemic by necessity, but even still, I talk to people who 
they still don't get it. They're still not comfortable with it. So I definitely want to dig into a lot of that. But before we even go into long distance real estate investing, I know one of the things you do on your initial podcast is talk to people that are really just starting out, not necessarily looking for the next deal, but look for their first deal. And I think it's definitely probably one of the most common questions. So I would love to ask your take on it is what is the best way to get started in real estate? I think house hacking is the best way for uh, especially somebody that's just getting started. I think house hacking is hands down the easiest and probably one of the most effective ways. So now house hacking is an interesting one. I have uh, some of my buddies like, you know, Ali Quinta, Aljamain Sterling, UFC fighters, Uriah Faber, I know did it for a while. They did the house hacking model where they had people move into their house and they rented out rooms, which it sounds like that's what you started with. And then I talked to other people that are in the, in the mode where they really don't want roommates. They don't want other people there. They want some privacy. So they move into more of the renting out the duplex, triplex, fourplex. And for people who don't know, you can get into those as a primary residence loan every year, the three and a half percent down loan in some cases. So talk a little bit about the strategy for people listening. What, what, what are the two pros and cons of that from, are you suggesting to most people that they do start out kind of renting out rooms or moving into that one to four unit facility kind of strategy? The only real con is that you're not in your own dwelling. I mean, that's really the only major con that I can think of. On the pro side, you can, in, in the strategy wise, you could do, like you said, you can have roommates. That's one way. You can do a little bit larger family uh, property with multifamily property with duplexes, triplex, fourplex. You could even, some people, you mentioned UFC fighters, professional athletes, a lot of times they'll actually Airbnb out their house when they're not there, since they're gone so long, they'll actually Airbnb out their house. That on a smaller scale for an individual who's not a professional athlete, that could even be house hacking. Basically the way I define it is utilizing extra space that you have in any type of property that you have to generate income. That is house hacking to me. And so the pros of it, I'll just give you a perfect example of my most recent deal was I bought a $350,000 asset for $12,000 down because it was a three and a half or 5% down program. So I didn't have to come up with 20%. And then it grew to over $400,000. So you generate super uh, large amounts of equity quickly because you're leveraging so much. And then after that, you live there for cheap. So my total mortgage is 2000. My tenants pay 1300. So I only have to pay $700 a month, which is very cheap, especially for my area in the greater Boston area. And then once I move out, I only have to live there for one year. You can rent it out after you leave. And now you have this property will generate $1,000 a month in passive income and I can do it again. So it's just the easiest way to get into a rental property. A lot of people are worried or can't fund 20 or 25% down for a property. You can get into a rental property. You just have to live there for a year and you can put 5% down. That's awesome. You know, uh, I think another thing that people struggle with here is on the investor side, a lot of them are trying to write stuff off where they're not really showing income as a, you know, as a solopreneur or initial entrepreneur, real estate investor. Are you finding any issues with or having any tips for creative loans for people that want a house hack that maybe can't show two years of income? So the, there are programs out there that will do basically what's called a no doc loan. And they're not three and a half or 5% down. Usually, I think the lowest that I've seen is 10% down. That doesn't mean that there isn't lower, but the best I've seen is about a 10% down. And a lot of them won't do multifamily. So you probably can't do a duplex or a triplex, but you could buy a single family with 10% down, which is still better than 20 or 25. And you could still house hack. I mean, you're gonna have to live with roommates. So this might not be the best situation, but 
or maybe it has a basement. So maybe you could buy a single family house. They don't see it as a, the bank. The lender doesn't see it as a multifamily dwelling. So you can live in, in the top and then rent out the basement. That would work. So you just kind of have to get creative. That's kind of the whole point of house hacking is it's not this traditional strategy. You have, no matter what, you just have to get creative and find a way. I love that, man. And, you know, David Green talks a lot about that too. And his market is finding single family homes. You can find ways to take additional income out of. So I think that strategy for, you know, attics and garages and basements and splitting rooms and stuff is definitely huge. So looking back to kind of where you started, what was the reason you were not investing initially in your market? Or what was the reason that you started to look towards investing out of your own market and remote real estate investing became attractive to you? So the reason I wasn't investing in real estate at first was because I thought you needed to be a millionaire or a billionaire to invest in real estate. So my plan always was I had studied Warren Buffett for a long time. I was really into stock investing and I was always interested in real estate, but I never thought that I could do it. So I said, I'll make all my money in the stock market and then I'll put it into real estate and I'll do it that way. But then when I started to house hack and I looked into bigger pockets, I found thousands and thousands and thousands of other people that were doing what I thought that I couldn't do. And I said, well, I mean, these people are no different than me. They don't have a lot more money than me. They don't have any special skills or anything like that. So if they can do it, then I can do it too. And so then I just started to, to just kind of go for it. And then in terms of going long distance, I was trying to buy, I had done two or three house hacks at the time and I was trying to buy my first true rental property. And where I live, we were looking for about 400, $450,000 at 20, 25% down. You're looking at over a hundred grand just in down payment plus closing costs. And I said to me, like, said to myself, that seems too risky. Like that seems like a really big bet for your first rental property. So I said, how can I do this with lower risk? And a lot of people are confused as to how going long distance is less risk. But for me, I could buy a, a rental property that had a mortgage of $475 a month with a total down payment of 15,000. And I personally see that as a lot less risky than buying a property where I live that has a $4,000 a month mortgage and over $100,000 down. So I just kind of took the leap, bought my first long distance rental, and I've just continued to scale in that same area since. I love that. And again, it's very similar to my mindset when I started. So I love hearing stories like that, of course. And, you know, obviously the, the follow-up to that is always going to be, well, where do we go? How do I select the market? Now you get people that get into the analysis paralysis or they just all want to go where they've heard everybody else is killing it. And then they feel like they can't get a deal. So, you know, there's obviously a double-edged sword to everything is you don't want to go in something that maybe is like crazy competitive. And you'd also don't want to be crazy cheap in the middle of nowhere, where stuff's not really moving or you're in some bad areas. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you select markets and some of the things you look into to decide if a market is good or bad. So when I first started to look for markets, people would ask me like, why, well, why don't you just go to these most common markets where everybody's doing long distance investing? Why don't you go to Birmingham, Alabama, Indianapolis? Why don't you go to some of these markets in Tennessee where there's tons of turnkey rental companies you can just go buy there. If there's a turnkey property company there, then you're, there's a good chance that a lot of people are investing long distance there. And so people would always ask me, why don't you just go to these popular markets? Ohio has a lot of them as well. And I said, well, I, I leaned on my stock investing background. I said, Warren Buffett is always looking for these underserved, underutilized. He basically says that he wants to fish where there's less fishermen and where there's less competition. And so I said, well, why don't I apply that same principle to real estate? I said, it, it just doesn't make sense to me why you're going to go where there's so much more competition. And not only that, I have different requirements that I have for these demographic data points 
And those cities might not even meet my requirements. So I'm not going to go there just because other people are going there. I want to do my own first, you know, critical thinking, my own uh, due diligence. And so that just didn't make sense to me. And so I started to, what I did was I paid a, I believe he's called the software developer, but a programmer basically ran a script to basically scrape all of this data off the internet. And he basically gathered six demographic data points for me for 7,000 cities across the US. I have a little bit of a background in Excel. So I had him put all that data in Excel. And then when he was done with it, I ranked every city from one to 7,000 on those six demographic data points. And I basically said, all right, I'll take the top 25. I'll go through them and I'll see, all right, which ones have inventory that are that I want to buy. So like, it, do they, do they only have single family? I'm looking for multifamily. Do they only have multifamily? I want single family. Like does the asset class tie into or match what I want to do? And then second, are there real estate professionals there that seem to be high quality or are there a lot of agents? Are they high quality? Are there plumbers, electricians, things like that, that I could lean on if I need to. So I crossed off the ones that didn't fit that criteria that left me with maybe 15 or so. 10 to 15. And so I just started making offers. I was indifferent. All of these cities were great. I knew that they met all of my criteria. They had professionals. So I was pretty much indifferent. And I had, I think I had like 13 offers out at one time across all of these different cities from Texas to Idaho to one of the Dakotas, Ohio, Florida, Alabama, North Carolina, like they were all over the place. And I basically just said, whichever one I get a deal in first, as long as things continue to go well and I can build a team there, then I'll continue to just invest and buy more properties there. And so that's what it did. I just happened to get a deal in this small little town in Texas and I've continued to invest there since. If you have been kicking yourself that you didn't start investing in real estate sooner, whether you're beginner, intermediate or advanced, any way you're looking to get it on a residential, commercial, land development, wholesale, and fix and flips, whatever it is, let's find a way to get you involved in some projects, get you some properties, whether you want to sell some properties to me, whether you want to buy some properties from me, whether residential, fix and flip, cash flow, multifamily, whatever it is you're looking for, let's figure out a way to get you involved or find a way for us to partner up on some deals. Go to www.nicknicknick.com, go on the consultation tab and figure out how to schedule an appointment to talk about where you fit in if you are not sure, or you can just reach out to me on any of my social media channels. If you go on www.nicknicknick.com slash links, you will see all the different ways to connect with me and figure out how we can start to work together, make it happen. Everybody that invests in real estate always just says they wish they did it sooner. Best time to start is today. And we are so on the same page with all of these things, the way that we got started and everything just kind of shooting out a large net and then seeing what you hit and then hyper-focusing on where you hit that target and then building it out from there. And I think that's all great stuff of if you're using, you're a little bit of an anomaly because usually that analytical side, somebody who has that type of brain and that type of personality to go and get the stats and the data and really take that time to do that due diligence also has a little bit of trouble making decisions and winging it a little bit. So I like that you're doing enough due diligence up front, but then you're not letting yourself overanalyze it once you go there. Taking that action is always not usually going hand in hand with the overanalysis. So that to me is, is a really interesting mix. Yeah, a lot of people definitely struggle with that. I just, I was, I had gone, it sounds like I didn't struggle with that at all, but I did because I went for a while with not buying anything, even though I wanted to, I forget the exact time period, but it was probably six to nine months that I really wanted to buy a deal, but I didn't. And you could call it an analysis by analysis. You could call it a bunch of different things, but I think that 
I had a period of time where I did struggle with that. And then I eventually just said, you know what, I need to just jump in and I need to just do this. And eventually I took action. I love that, man. What are some things when you talk to people or, or that you were thinking or hearing that are some misconceptions or fears about remote investing? A lot of people are worried that they haven't, the biggest thing is that they haven't seen the property. And I always push back on that and say, one, well, one, that they haven't seen the property. Two, who is going to deal with the problems? And so I, I cover both of those things kind of the same way with the same approach. The first thing is, if you're not a professional in terms of like a contractor, electrician, plumber, et cetera, you probably don't know what you're looking at anyway. So for me, when I go to look at a house, even if I'm buying my personal residence, I can go in and see if I like the layout, if I like the bedrooms and it has what I want, but I, I can't tell if anything is quality. The plumbing could be the worst plumbing ever. It could have the wrong electrical stuff. Like it could be completely wrong and I would have absolutely no idea. So for me, it just doesn't matter if I've seen it or not. And then second, especially if it's a rental, I'm not living there. So I don't have to like the layout. And the second thing is, how do you fix things? It's kind of the same philosophy. People are like, oh, well, what if the toilet breaks? And I'm like, well, even if the toilet breaks in my dupe, because I own a duplex that I house hack, even if the toilet breaks in my next door neighbor's house, I don't know how to fix the toilet. I'm not going over there. I'm not going to fix it. So I'm going to call a, a plumber and they're going to go over there and they're going to fix it for me. So why does it matter if I have to dispatch that plumber to my next door neighbor's house, or if I have to dispatch that plumber to a house in Texas that I own? It's the same process. And I think that not only scares people, but it also forces them to think like business owners, which is a little bit more difficult. So for me, those are the biggest misconceptions that I see other people have. And it's really when you think about it objectively and you sit down and really actually think about it, not just take the narratives that people throw at you it just makes so much sense that it's totally possible. A thousand percent agreement. I have those same conversations where people are like, well, I just want to be close just in case something weird happens. And I'm like, and then what? Well, that didn't go take care of it. It's like, well, what do you do? I'm a school teacher. It's like, oh, so your, your husband, your wife, your friend, your brother was a contractor. You work with your dad on the side when you were growing up. No. Have you ever put a tool belt on? Never. Well, you sound more than qualified to go over there and work on the electric day. Like, you know, like, so not only shouldn't you be there, but a lot of these things that you think you're going to go over there and do, like, it's not safe for you to go over and start working on, like, electrocute yourself, kill yourself. But it's just funny the way that their, their minds go. And I, I agree with you as well with the, the misconceptions people have about their own markets, even if they don't realize it. I have these talks all the time and it's like, you think a certain way about an area because of things that were put into your head at a young age that are not necessarily the same things that you're looking at from an investment standpoint and you've ruled them out. Whereas when you go into a market that you don't really know, it's a lot easier to just focus on the metrics and the data and the stats. And that makes it easier to make a non-emotional decision. And I think that's why people don't see opportunities sometimes in their market where other people are making money. They go outside of that just because it tends to put those blinders on for you're not looking at the things in your own backyard. The same way somebody's looking at it through investors' eyes. Yeah, it's interesting because I kind of went through that same philosophy where you, when you live in an area for so long, I live in the same area for 25 years at this time, at that point. And, you know, there's these narratives or these kind of uh, reputations that areas have, and you don't want to live there. You don't want to buy there for whatever reason. But what it was interesting when I started to invest long distance, I learned how to read the data. And so one day I was like, oh, let's just apply that data to where I live just to kind of see what it would tell me. And like, it just, it blew my mind at how many local areas that I kind of was told to quote unquote avoid that I actually would invest in based on the data. So I, I've been through that exact same 
kind of the thought process as you. That's awesome, man. <clears throat> when we were starting out, I was having this conversation yesterday on a different podcast, but a lot of people teach you how to potentially do real estate as far as, you know, you talk to realtors, you say you pull lists, but there's not enough talk of how to run things like a business. And obviously over years, you learn that businesses fail. And then when you start to do them, you realize that it's because even if you have a good product, if you don't have good systems in place, things don't work out. It's very hard to scale. And I remember I was talking to Brandon Turner about this and he was like, yeah, that was like the biggest thing I wish somebody helped me understand earlier in my investing career is more of like the business practices and less of really the day-to-day -day real estate stuff. So for you, being that you started at a young age and you're, you're kind of, you've gone through some growing pains, what are some things that you've learned and how are you really developing your, your niche as a business rather than just a hobby or a side hustle? One of the biggest things is leveraging technology. So thankfully, because I am young, I think that my generation has kind of grown up a little bit more with technology. And so it was kind of an easy transition for me, but just leverage software. Like I bought the, the house hack I bought it from when I showed up at closing, the guy literally handed me his notebook of his financials. Like he literally had a notebook where he was writing things in. he handed paper receipts to the tenants that live there. Like that's the type of stuff that you don't want to do. Like use a software that you can, even if, if you're property managing yourself, have a software make people pay electronically, don't use cash, make them pay it electronically, make you do go through maintenance requests. A lot of times people, when I first, first started, people were sending me maintenance requests like text. And I'm like, no, I need to set up a system for this. So I set up a system. Now the maintenance request, they know, go into the platform, submit your maintenance request. When I get the email for the maintenance request, I just forward it to the plumber, the electrician, whoever it is. And they know, okay, just go handle this. And they call the tenant and it's over. So it's setting up, like you said, systems. And for me, the biggest thing about that has been leveraging technology and thinking of yourself as the owner, not as even so much the operator. That's excellent. You reminded me of the fact that you do have to train everybody, whether it's your team or your tenants or your contractors. When people are complaining to me that they don't like the way their business is going or they don't like the way they're interacting with their people, it's because they're allowing them to do that. And something that you just said was such a, a great lesson for me is was the property manager was like, oh, you don't understand. People are knocking on my door all day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner in the middle of the night. And I was like, well, you have an office. There should be office hours. So if you're allowing people to come to your door and you're taking those requests, that's your fault. That's not my fault. I gave you an office. I gave you office hours. You have to train them that this is when you're, you're taking those requests. This is when you're talking to people. And I think there's a, you know, initially... You want to keep everybody happy, but you realize that that's going to burn out your teams. Or if you're doing the management, it's going to burn you out. And most people are looking into real estate to get more time back. And that's going to be something where if you don't set up those boundaries from the beginning, it's going to take double to triple the time. And then you're going to have a terrible experience. And I think long distance forces you to do that. The guy that was that I bought it from, he didn't have to because he lived 20 minutes away. So he didn't he wasn't forced to being long distance kind of forces your hand to do that. I think that's one of the biggest benefits. Yeah, I agree with that for completely, man. And then there's a, a couple of other things that as an entrepreneur, as an athlete, I'd love to hear you talk about because as much as people want to hear about the how you run your numbers and where you pull the stuff from, I'm a big believer that if you don't have focus and discipline and accountability on a daily basis, it, none of that other stuff really matters. And I think part of the the double-edged sword that I've heard you discuss with focus is people... And I, I deal with this almost on a daily basis. Like I want to focus on this one thing, but then you see other stuff pop up on social media. Or I do a podcast with somebody who's now you're killing it with RVs. And I go, well, I don't want to miss the boat on the RV stuff. Maybe I'll do that. And you wind up not really knowing where to go. And you feel that you're going to miss out on everything else. 
And it turns out that, you're, again, you're not focusing on anything and you're doing a bunch of stuff, but you're not doing anything well. So it definitely is a common thread for entrepreneurs in general, and especially people starting out. So what kind of advice or tips can you do that you were able to overcome those things? Because you're obviously doing a few different things, but you're doing a few different things well, which I'm sure didn't happen all at once. I would say that I'm not fully over this. I, I don't think <laughs> I don't think it's fair to say that I've overcome this. I think this is... If I'm being fully honest with you and myself, I think this is no, hands down number one, the most thing that I struggle with. Like I struggle with this the most out of anything uh, because of that shiny object syndrome. I'm, I'm wired to be an entrepreneur. So anytime I see something, I, I want to go after it. And just yesterday, I had a podcast interview with Jay Papazan, who is the author of The One Thing literally the book on doing just one thing and focusing. And it was great. It was like a one-on-one -on -one mentor session with him. And so I learned a lot, but it's still something that I struggle with myself. And I think the biggest thing has kind of helped me is that not now doesn't mean never. So you can have three or four or five different ideas that you want to do. And just because you don't do it now doesn't mean you can't ever do it. So what I try to do is set a goal for something and see what point I want to get it to. And then I tell myself, okay, once you get to that point, then you can start working on this other project. Brandon Turner, you mentioned him earlier. The way he explains it is you're building, a, imagine you're building a bridge across two islands. You can start on building another bridge once that bridge hits the other island. But until then, you need to focus on that bridge. And so that's kind of the same approach that I have taken. Yeah, and I think, again, that comes down to, to discipline. And I, you know, I refer to it sometimes as like the Netflix conundrum is everybody has those days where... They just want to sit around and watch TV. And I've heard you say that you really don't. And I definitely feel that that becomes a slippery slope. And, you know, when the, the pandemic first happened, everybody was talking about Tiger King, Tiger King, Tiger King. Did you watch Tiger King? And I was like, I'm going to make it a point to never watch that just because when the world's kind of falling apart and people should really be focusing more than ever on what am I going to do? Because nobody knows how long this is going to go on or what's going to happen. Like I'm using this downtime where the world's at a standstill to take a sprint ahead of everybody else and like honing my craft and fill all those holes and other people were just letting themselves sink. So what do you do to keep yourself accountable and hold yourself to that discipline every day to make sure that you're doing something to better yourself instead of just kind of wasting away or falling into the inevitable pit of the Tiger King syndrome and the Netflix conundrum? Yeah, it's funny. I've, I felt the exact same way. I've never watched Tiger King. I'm not really interested in it for one, but for two, I kind of felt the exact same way that you did is that so many people are interested in it. I'm just like, I don't, I don't have the time to, to spend on that. Now, lately, I've actually found a little bit of value in disconnecting a little bit from work and spending some time actually watching TV. So I, I really am not, I have not been a person that watches a lot of TV, but I do, I have been trying to disconnect a little bit from work and spend a little bit of time on that and try to fight burnout that way and to have a little bit of downtime. But I don't really allow that to happen unless I've gotten what I need to for the day done or for the week. So it really, it's just discipline, really. I think discipline is like the biggest thing that people can have. And it's figuring out, I make a list every day of all the things that I need to get done. And so that's how I keep myself organized throughout the day. Yeah, I agree, man. You know, it's uh, it, it does have its place. I, I try to hold myself accountable for like before eight o'clock or after eight o'clock. If I did the stuff I'm supposed to do, then I can like turn the TV on. But I try to not have it on during those times just to make sure like, hey, stay focused. There will be a time for that because you do need to unplug. And for me, you know, that was things like jujitsu or just something to, to shut your brain off. It can't be all business podcasts all day long and work all day. 
Um, you know, but like you said, there, there's a fine line to that. And for you, is that something that the motocross helps you with is being able to kind of just disconnect and reset and focus on something that has nothing to do with the business stuff that you're handling all day? Yeah, that's part of it. It's really any hobby that I have outside of business, investing, anything like that. So going to the gym and riding dirt bikes. I mean, I guess those are like the two biggest things. Anything that's really not related to that really helps. But the problem is, I guess at the gym, I still listen to podcasts, business podcasts, <laughs> kind of work in there. But yeah, I mean, when I am riding, it's there's nothing in my head other than riding. So that is probably the best thing that helps me disconnect. Nice, man. Awesome. Well, I imagine like it's somewhat like jujitsu, whereas if you let your mind wander, you could get yourself hurt. So you're, you're forced to be present in that moment. And one of my, uh, one of my jujitsu buddies, Ruben, he gave me like the best analogy. He, he had his baby there and he's like, man, she's like a, an iPhone. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, every night when she goes to sleep, she wakes up with like a new feature. <laughs> he's like, you know, she's now she can say this. Now she does this. And I was like, man, I guess that's kind of what happens to us is I'm kind of malfunctioning. I'm short circuiting a little bit. I'm, 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 I'm doing all these things that I'm not really running or firing all cylinders. And then I reset my brain and I reset myself for an hour of jujitsu and I come back and I'm like, ah, oh, I see things so much clearly now. So I think everybody does need a little bit of that. And I think it definitely helps a lot. Yeah. I think the focus piece, like you said, is you get hurt. Is it, it's, I mean, the, the things we're talking about, you get hurt. Maybe if you're playing a different sport, you might not get injured, but yeah, for sure. You get to be focused on, on what you're doing. When you come back, you become more refreshed and just ready to get back to work. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of like the real estate side now, I'd love to hear some more of the details about what you're doing with house hacking and talk about the book coming up. And then also I'd like to roll right after that into talking about the RV stuff. Cause I really haven't had anybody on here who specializes in either one of those two strategies. Yeah. So the, the work piece, the one last thing I want to mention on that is I heard an analogy, like you mentioned with the iPhone with uh, it's about lions where lions, if you look at them, they're considered one of the more ferocious creatures in the jungle, but they sleep 80, 90% of the time, right? They're not working. But then when they do work for that small period of time, it's an absolute sprint. So a lot of people recommend that you take that kind of approach where you have a lot of downtime and you're not necessarily doing this work that's burning you out. But then when you are, you're really, really focused and you're working really, really hard on it. So I like that analogy, but in terms of house hacking, yeah. So I, I, wrote I just wrote a book on it and it's coming out at the end of summer early fall and it's really your a to z guide on how to house hack and I mentioned this before I think it's the best strategy for all new investors to get started so I really want to help people get started in real estate with that and I'm on my third house hack I've kind of done all kinds of different strategies so my first one was with roommates I rented out one bedroom my second one is what we call a live-in flip so I did that as well. My third one is a duplex. So I rent out one unit. I live in the other. I've also Airbnb'd that, my unit out while I'm not there at times. So I've, I've kind of leveraged that strategy as well. I've even stayed in the RV while I Airbnb my unit. So I've gotten really creative with a lot of the different house hacking strategies that I've talked about either on podcasts or in the book. That's awesome, man. And so RVs, when I first started hearing about that, I, I didn't really understand what it was. I thought it was just very similar to the mobile home park strategy. But as I was hearing, I guess you had on there, Heather Blankenship talk about it. And I talked to her team a little bit. I am really that there's a lot of different things on there. So for people who don't know the difference or are not familiar with what that strategy is for investing in RV and RV parks, can you go into a little bit of the nuts and bolts of that? So what Heather's doing, Heather Blankenship, is a little bit different than what I do. But what Heather's doing is basically 
buying campgrounds and RV parks. And then, so that's like the main strategy. And then part of that is she'll have a, a rental unit basically on that property where, so it's an RV just there and people can rent it. So it's, it's like an RV rental inside her campground. That's, that's one way. And that's kind of how she's implementing it. What I'm doing is more of a house hack strategy with RVs and that's kind of led to RV rentals. So basically I got back into racing and I was going to these races that I was there for multiple days and I got, it's very, very, very common for everybody there to have RVs or uh, travel trailers or something like that. And I was driving to the hotel every week and there was one race that I went to where we were in the middle of nowhere and the hotel was like an hour away. And that was kind of the final straw for me. I was like, all right, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm buying an RV. And I had a guest on the podcast who told me that he got into RV rentals. And so it just kind of hit me one day. I was like, well, why don't I just rent the RV out when I'm not using it and I'll use it when I need it. And it's like, how it's like combining house hacking with the RV. So that's what I did. I bought it. I said, at least if I can rent it like once a month, twice a month and cover at least my expenses, I can use it for free. That would be great. And then I got into it and I realized that there's actually, there can be a, a bit of money in RV rentals. And so now I rent it almost exclusively. I, I don't use it a ton myself anymore and, and I'm looking to buy more, but yeah, that's the strategy. It's just like a, kind of like an Airbnb, but with RVs or, or a rental car. Think of combining rental cars with Airbnb. It's basically an RV. People rent it short-term like Airbnbs and go do their trip and then come back and, and drop it off. And, and that's pretty much it. So you're, you're buying them or you're doing like a rent to rent arbitrage type deal. So I buy mine. Okay. Interesting. Is there, is there financing issues like there would be on a mobile home park? No. So that's one of the best parts of RVs is that the financing is super attractive. So it's very easy to qualify for if you have good credit and good income. So I bought a 60 or $65,000 RV with $0 down. And because they are, they hold their value pretty well, they allow you to do up to a 20 year term. And even at pretty attractive interest rates, so my interest rate is 5%. So basically I bought a $65,000 RV, 20 year term, 5% interest rate, 0% down. And that's, I was off the, I was off running. Nice. And then what kind of like, what kind of cash flow are you looking at that for, for what your payment would be? What, you, what kind of income are you looking at for that? So uh, if it's rented, so I, I'll just give you one trip. This is the best trip that I've had numbers wise. So uh, a guy rented it, this it's coming up for this July and he's renting it for three weeks. His total cost is like $7,700 for three weeks. And my profit on that after all of the platform takes its fees is about 4,000. And that's for three weeks. And my, my payment is $440 for the month. So take out four, say 500 for the payment. So now from 4,000, you're down to 3,500 in profit and say, maybe put 500 aside for maintenance, repairs, oil change, cleaning, things like that. So for a three week rental, you're looking at maybe $3,000 in profit. And so I just had another rental go out. It was a three-day rental. It just got back yesterday and it made like $200 in profit. So they paid 400, I made 200. So a couple of weekend trips here and there, you can make a thousand dollars. It really depends how long it is, but it rents for $247 a night. So it's a pretty high uh, premium for, for the rental rate. Ever wanted to play the drums? Or do you want to get your kids some drum lessons to burn some of that energy while they are all locked up? Take advantage of a free drum lesson. 
with one of the tri-state area's most respected drummers, Dan LaMagna. Dan LaMagna has played in such bands as Crown of Thorns, Suicide City, Biohazard, The Real McKenzie's, Sworn Enemy, The Walls of Jericho. He has played all over the world and he has also endorsed by such companies as DW, Vader, and Sabian. Dan has taught tons of people from all different age groups and all different music styles. He can teach adults, kids, advanced, beginner, any types of styles from metal, all different types of percussion, whatever style you want. Get a free drum lesson today from Dan. All you need to do is text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to 833-632-0585. Again, text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to the number 833-632-0585 for your free online drum lesson. Yeah, so I mean, if you get a pretty decent first month, you can kind of get all your reserves for your payments for your debt service of the first year all set aside just from that one sale. Yeah, absolutely. So that one rent, that one rental covers my my debt service for the entire year. Basically, I'm not doing this, but if I wanted to, I could be I do that one rental. That's it. Not you, not rent it again, and just use it for myself for the whole year for free. That's pretty awesome. It's be like if you could do that with a house, like yeah, I'm just going to rent it one month, and then I'm going to live there for free the rest of the year. Like people would jump all over that, especially getting a zero down loan. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. You got me kind of excited about it now. I'm like, all right, maybe we can talk about that. Don't fall, don't fall victim to shiny object syndrome, though. Yeah, it, is great. it is great, but uh, you, you said it before. Yeah, stick to what I'm good at. So talking about your buy box and for your other stuff, um, I know you're doing some single family stuff. I know you've been doing some multifamily stuff. You're doing some birth stuff. So talk a little bit about kind of the strategies you're utilizing for a single family, multifamily. What do you got going on right now? So I originally, when I wanted to buy rentals, said that I would buy anything that wasn't multifamily. There's a lot of people that say single family is, is a horrible asset class. It's super risky. And I kind of felt the same way at first was like, oh, well, if I can't rent this thing, then I have to cover the mortgage. There's only one unit. If they move out, if I have an issue, then I can't, you know, I, I got to cover that. And so I think that's a little bit of a fallacy because it's true if you only buy one, but if you buy four or five, then, I mean, then you're at the same point as if you had bought four or five in terms of like a diversification standpoint. Like if, if you have a four unit and one person doesn't pay, you still have the other three. And it's the same with the houses. If you buy four single family houses, if one doesn't pay, you still have the other three to cover it. So that's a little bit of a fallacy, uh, unless you're buying only one. The, the second thing is that what I found at least is you get really high quality, you can get really high quality tenants on the single family properties because they're, they're like their homes and not to say an apartment couldn't be, or like a, a four unit or five unit couldn't be, but for the most part, single family homes are a lot more homey than these apartment multifamily properties. And so what I find is I get really good tenants, high quality families with children and they have garages, nice yards, everything. So people take great care of it. They're really easy to manage. They are responsible. And so that has been the asset class that I've focused on now. The downside is that it's hard to scale. I mean, you're going through a closing and so maybe you need less to close because you're buying smaller deals. But in terms of like a logistic standpoint, it is a pain because you go through the same inspection, appraisal, closing, like all of that is more or less the same, whether you buy a single family or you buy a 25 unit. So there's a lot more headache from that perspective, but I have found it to be doing pretty well. So my goal here is to buy probably a dozen single family houses there, 12 or so, and then sell them all probably. And then turn that capital from 12 into maybe like a 50 unit or something like that. So kind of build a small portfolio of single family and then, and roll it into a larger multifamily. I've also been really interested in Airbnbs lately. So might buy an Airbnb or 
I might just go right into the 25 unit apartment building. So I'm, I'm honestly kind of in a limbo in terms of what I want to do personally, but those have been the strategies. And I, like you mentioned, I have done some burrs into those single family deals as well. So that's kind of what I've done and what I'm looking to do going forward. Awesome, man. Are you seeing in the, with the way the market's starting with the lenders are any issues with the refinancing or the LTV restrictions on burrs? I haven't bought anything in the last three to six months. Well, I'd say the last one I bought was actually it was in March. So I bought three deals last year in March in one month and I haven't bought anything since. So I haven't bought anything about a year. So I can't really speak to necessarily what, what the markets are doing right now. I have seen interest rates are up quite a bit, but that's really all I've seen personally. Fair enough, man. And then obviously now going into the podcasting network and the podcast you have, Real Estate 101 and the Investors uh, Millennium Investor Podcast, I'd love to hear a little bit about why you started that podcast and, and especially about the podcast network, man. Uh, some of the guests you guys have had on there, some of the downloads, some of the numbers, like it is staggering with the names and the numbers you guys have on that network. So when I started, got started was my, I'd only listened to one podcast pretty much exclusively. It was called We Study Billionaires. And I love that show. It was the first podcast I ever listened to. They studied Warren Buffett. That was all I was interested in at the time. And they started to want to launch new shows. And they put an ad out in their show and said, hey, we've built such a big show. We have a great brand. We want to leverage that brand to launch new shows. And I, I just wanted to work with the guys. Like, it really wasn't that, that deep for me. Like, I'll be honest with you. I just wanted, I thought it'd be cool. I was like, oh, it'd be cool to host a podcast. I'd love to work with these guys that founded it, that I've looked up to for years. And so I just went through the process and I got turned down at first. There was a long process. <laughs> I went through a bunch of steps and he said, no, he's like, you're too young. And I didn't take no for an answer. I was, I'm hungry, I'm gritty. And I, I kind of pushed through. And ultimately, long story short, we worked through some things together and ultimately I ended up getting the real estate podcast. We did the millennial investing show as well. And today, my philosophy on it is a lot different than it was when I first started. I just thought it would be cool to host a podcast. Today, it's really honestly amazing at how many people have reached out to me and said that the education that they've learned through the podcast has changed their lives. And I didn't really expect that or, or see that coming when I started the show. But now seeing it, that's, that's why I do it. I think that's awesome, man. Now, as far as the, the guests and the surprises and all that kind of stuff that pops up on there... Um, one, I think people hugely underestimate the amount of prep work that goes into being a podcast host. They think that you get to talk to these cool people, you jump on. And what I have learned is over-preparing because I'm, I'm the kind of person, like in the A-game podcast, I always want to bring my A-game to stuff. So I will over-analyze and do extra due diligence to make sure I'm aware of all the guests and get to know them and all this stuff. And then when they come on, even some of the biggest names, I'm always blown away when they're just saying, hey, thank you for taking a little bit of time to learn a little bit about me, you'd be surprised how many times I get on these shows or even on like TV and they don't really know my name or where I'm from, or they're confusing me with somebody else. And it blows my mind that people do that. But, you know, I do understand that a lot of people just want to take the lazy way out. So with you, with all the guests you have and the amount of shows you put out, what are you doing for prepping for these guests? And are there any of them that make you nervous before you get on? So preparation, let me talk on, touch on the nervous part first. Uh, at first, yeah, it did. First couple of times I talked to some big guys, it was, it was a little bit nerve wracking, but after you got to, I got to my third, fourth, fifth one, you know, I'd got to my fifth Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank. By the time I had met Kevin, it was fine. Like I wasn't nervous at all, but the first time that I met Jesse Itzler, I was pretty nervous. He was like one of the first big, big names I had, or 
Lewis Howes. Like I was a little bit nervous because those are like the first couple big names that I had. But then, like I said, Kevin O'Leary and some of these other Shark Tank guys and other big names like that. By that point, I wasn't nervous. And, and yesterday I talked to one of my favorite business authors, Jay Papazan, and it was fine. I didn't even think twice. Like I didn't think any different of talking to him than I think of talking to you today. And so it, it, at first, yes, but it, it does go away. Now, in terms of preparation, preparation is huge. I think preparation is key. And I think that there's, there's no excuse to not prepare. I mean, just point blank, there's no, no excuse to not prepare. You don't have to be talented. You don't have to be skilled. You don't have to be special. Any person can just put in the time, put in the effort, put in the work to be prepared for something, whether it's a podcast or an investment or a sport or whatever it is, your job, your school, whatever it is, there's no reason there's, you don't need a skill, money, nothing. You can be prepared for whatever it is. So I think preparation is everything. And the guest Jay Papazan that I had yesterday, I had, I believe I had reached out to him before and he had been on my like kind of goal list to have him on the show for a while, because like I said, I look up to him a couple of his books are like my favorite books. And so I hadn't been able to connect with him for probably a year or two. And I really wanted to get him on the show. Just so happens I had a guest a couple months ago who I prepared for and did the interview just like normal. I didn't know anything. Like I didn't know who he knew. I just prepared like I always do. And at the end of the interview, he's like, oh my God, thank you so much for all your preparation. Like that was so unexpected, but it was really appreciated. Like I've never been on a podcast that prepares like you do. Uh, if there's anybody in my network that I can connect you with, please let me know. He rattled off a couple of people that he knew. One of those people was Jay Papazan. And I was like, well, I mean, if you can connect me to Jay, I mean, that would be amazing. And so he's like, yeah, I'd love to. And so he connected me to Jay. And then when I talked to Jay, he basically said, listen, your preparation is unmatched, even for our show. Like, I really appreciate it. And this referral came almost exclusively because of how much preparation you put in uh, to be prepared for for this interview. So it's tough. I mean, yeah, Gary V talks about how you can just hit record on your phone and start recording a podcast. And he's right. You can like, don't let this hold you back. You can just get started. But at the same time, if you want to be best in class, if you want to be one of the world-class podcasts, like I, I believe that our shows are, then you need to put in the preparation. You don't have to necessarily have the best equipment or anything like that. Like I said, don't let that, that hold you back, but you can put in the preparation. And so for me, I spend anywhere from I'll be honest, some guests are only an hour or an hour and a half because I already know them. Like if I already know them really well, then I don't have to spend a ton of time. But if I don't know them or I want to read their book, it's upwards of three, six, eight hours for every single episode. There's some people that I know who they are, but I don't know them super well and I never read their book. I need to go back and reread the entire book or I need to go back and read the, the whole book. And then, I'm, then I can generate questions, watch some interviews that they've done, like really prepare. And so that could be upwards of eight hours. Other people, I've already read the book. I'll just go back, kind of reread it quickly, kind of find some main points, do that. So it's hour to three hours. But yeah, I mean, preparation is, is really everything. It's amazing because, again, uh, the, the essence of my podcast is just whatever you're doing, you bring your A game to it. And it's not necessarily, I mean, it is for you, but at the end of the day, it's exactly what I always say is what you just went over was, when you bring your A game, other A players are seeing that in you. It doesn't matter what the tasks are. If they see that you're somebody that goes the extra mile and is reliable and is willing to put up the work and, and do the things that other people won't, they're going to recognize that what they have in them is what you have in you. And that's going to intro you to the next thing and the next thing and the next relationship. So, you know, regardless of who the, who the guest is, like I love 
that story about that's why you go out and you do those things. And when you become somebody who has a reputation of being reliable and being prepared and being professional, it opens so many doors for, again, just doing the things that you should be doing anyway. And some people just set the bar so low. So I, I appreciate that you do that. And I agree. And I, again, I know you know, it, but the amount of time that goes into some of these guests, it's just because you don't want to just go in and ask the same cliche stuff and people are giving you their time and you don't want to have them come on and waste it. I tell them all the time, like, like, oh, you did a lot of work. I'm like, well, I can't have like a, a C game interview on an A game podcast. I, you know, I gotta, I gotta come here with some heat. So um, one last thing before I start to let you go and we wrap up here that I, I always want to ask people that have talked to the caliber of successful people that you have two, two questions we'll kind of end with one. I had Jordan Harbinger on my show and he was telling me the story about how he had Kobe Bryant on his and he went over how he got Kobe Bryant on his podcast. And because of that, I was like, I have to listen to this interview knowing what he went through to get it. And Kobe had passed at that point, but I had a major misconception of who he was, what he was about, and I had him all wrong. And then when I started listening to that podcast, I became a huge fan of him. And I, I don't know why I had a misconception of him the wrong way. And it made me regret that I had not paid more attention to him prior. I'm a huge fan of him now on just the way he talks and how he acts. Is there any guest that you've had that you might've had a misconception of that after talking to them completely shifted you or changed you around like that? And they became like a huge inspiration that you might not have thought that was going to happen. In that direction? No, I've actually had one go the other way. <laughs> if you find that interesting, I, I thought they were a big inspiration. I thought they were really awesome. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to say their name. I don't want to put them out there like that because that's not the point. But the point is there's been somebody on the that I've had on the show that I really, really looked up to. I thought they were amazing. A lot of people really, 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 really look up to them. And he was just not what I thought. And I was very disappointed and I no longer look up to him in any way uh, and no longer really consume content. So uh, I haven't really had it go that way. I did have a guest actually recently, his name's Elliot Biznow, episode will be coming out in a couple of weeks. Not so much to that same degree that you said, where, you know, totally changed my life, but I had never heard of him. And he asked to come on the show. He sounded like he had a really interesting story. And when I talked to him, he was awesome. And he had a really great story. And so now I'm pretty interested in what he's doing and I'll follow him along. I wouldn't say he's like, you know, my new inspiration or anything, but definitely uh, has kind of changed my my perspective, or at least open my eyes to something new that he's doing that I, I wasn't aware of. So I've kind of had a little bit of one way, but more so on the on the downside. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess I could I can relate to that too. And, uh, you know, finally, after talking to so many successful people, is there a common thread or a common theme that you see across the board for all of these one percenters? So I actually get asked this question a lot because of some of the people that I've talked to. And I think I give an answer that people might not expect. And that's, it's not that all of these people, if I line them all up and compare them, it's not that any of them have given the same advice that, okay, this is the common thread that they've all said, and this is what we should be doing. Rather, it's kind of what I've deduced from having spoken to them that they haven't told me that I've just realized on my own. And so what that I've noticed is all of these guys, all these gals and guys that are super high performers, they are no different than us. And they're not really telling us that they're not coming out there and saying, Hey, I'm no different than you. Like you can do this. I mean, some of them will, but for the most part, that's not really like the, the key takeaway that they want you to hear. But what I've noticed is these people are no different than you and me. They don't really have any special skills. Like they might be smart and they might have a little bit of things here and there, but like generally speaking, they are the same as us. There's no reason that we can't do what they've done. And what has made me realize that is like, 
I'll be on a podcast. And again, I'm not going to say who these people are in, in these cases, but I'll have them on the show and their cat will run in the room or their dog will jump on their lap or their kid will run behind them or like whatever the case is. And it's just like, like, wow, like you are dealing with real world problems. Like every day people are dealing with, and yeah, you have like a hundred million dollar company that you own or a billion dollar company or you're a billionaire. And so you've had success, but like when you really boil it down, you're dealing with the same stuff I am. And you didn't start with anything better than me. You've just put in the hard work. You've had the discipline. You've made it happen. And Jesse Itzler, I think, is probably one of the best at illustrating that. If you follow him on social media, he shows like his real life. And I think that that's good. I think it helps humanize him and, and show that anybody can do it. So it's again, it's not really any one piece of advice that all these people have given me. It's just kind of a similar thread that I've taken from all of them that I've noticed is that they're special in the sense that they've done special things, but they're not special in the sense that we can't replicate what they've done. I love that, man. I think that that goes a, a huge way. And especially talking to people like that and realizing that average people do extraordinary things every day is very inspiring for the average person, you know? So I do love that. And I, I should link you up with my buddy, Joe Cherry. He's got an amazing story that not a lot of people know, but you know, he said, Jesse Itzler, he introduced me to Jocko Willing, Jim Quick, like all these amazing guys. And I asked him the same question and he's had a lot of the same exact guests you have on and he gave a completely different answer. So I never thought of that before is sometimes what you're getting out of all the guests is, is what you're looking for, which is going to be a little bit different than maybe somebody else. So it is really interesting because you could ask a hundred people that in the same situation, the same question and get a different answer, which I think is, is kind of fascinating. Well, because I would go in, I think it's right. You said you find what you're looking for. And for me, I was always looking I think subconsciously, I always gave myself an out or an excuse like, oh, I haven't had this pinnacle of success because these people have something I don't have. And so when I go into these interviews, I think that's what I was looking for is I was looking for them to say like something and be like, oh, so that I could say, oh, well, I don't have that. So, yep, I guess I can't do it. See, I was right. My this is why, you know, and that's not what I found and not what I believe to be true. And so, like you said, I find it super inspirational, super motivational and makes me want to work a lot harder. Well, man, I think you're doing an awesome job. I love talking to you. I'm really happy you reached out. I enjoy your podcast. I enjoy listening to you be a guest on the podcast. The network's huge. Obviously, anybody looking for connecting with you and following you, all the notes are going to be in the show notes for the podcast. I'll put all live links on there. But talk about how do people find you? How can people connect with you? What do you have going on that you want people to be aware of? Yeah, I really appreciate you having me, Nick. The first place, the book is coming out. It's called The Everything Guide to House Hacking. You can find it on Amazon. Barnes and it'll be at your Barnes and Nobles, Walmarts, Targets. It's everywhere. So you can pre-order it. I really appreciate you guys picking up a copy. I think it'll, it'll hopefully change your life. The second thing is if you're interested in the RV stuff, I have a course where I teach people how to do RV investing. Uh, if you're interested in that, you can check that out. It's realestateinvestingwideopen.com. And then other than that, best place to just connect with me is social media. It's at the Robert Leonard. And that's Twitter, Instagram are the most places that I'm active. You can find the podcast there. You can find anything else that I'm working on. My DMs are always open. Uh, I get a lot of them. So I, it sometimes takes a, a little while for me to respond, but I try to get to every single one if I can. If you have a question about anything we talked about, I'm happy to help. And uh, yeah, Nick, really appreciate you having me. Matt, this has been awesome. Any final thoughts before I let you go today? No, thank you so much. Well, once again, man, you bring your A-game all the time. You brought it to this podcast. I had a great time talking to you. Thank you very much. I look forward to having you on again. Robert Leonard, ladies and gentlemen.